0: This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in
1: depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts.
2: In this episode, we're joined by Jason Shardlow Rest, Managing Associate in Dispute Resolution at Linklaters, to look at the past, present, and future of Financial Fair Play, or FFP. FFP was originally established by UEFA a decade ago to tackle overspending at European clubs and in an attempt to curb the pursuit of short-term success at the expense of long-term financial damage. Whilst the rules have been in place for some time, FFP, and specifically its related enforcement action, continues to make headlines regularly. In their discussion, Jason and John explore financial fair play at this critical juncture, looking at its origination and more recent evolution in light of the emergency measures rolled out by UEFA in 2020 in response to COVID-19. They also consider the future of financial fair play, amidst public statements from UEFA that suggest the rules are currently being reviewed and will be overhauled, with further information due from the organisation next month and new regulations coming into play from next year. Please note that this podcast was recorded on 13th of July and some of the topics which are addressed in the conversation have since developed including reference to Lionel Messi as a free agent prior to his move to PSG, which was agreed just last week.
1: So Jason, welcome to the InFocus Sport podcast. Firstly, could you tell the listeners a bit about you, the work that you do and the Linklater sports sector team?
0: Hi John, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Sure, so I'm a managing associate within the Linklaters dispute resolution team. So I work primarily on commercial litigation, competition litigation, and other advisory matters where there are disputes issues. And that work spans a few different sectors, including financial services and, importantly, for present purposes, the sports sector as well. And as for the Linklater sports team, this is effectively a cross-practice and multi-jurisdictional team, ranging from mergers and acquisitions work and financing to employment issues or the disputes work that I do. And we work with a broad range of clients, including major industry stakeholders. And we've also got a dedicated blog, Sporting Links, which I'd encourage listeners to subscribe to. And that's got contributions from across the firm on legal developments in sports. And it's probably just worth adding a little bit about me. My interest here goes beyond my professional work. I'm also a big sports fan and an Arsenal season ticket holder.
1: Great. So if we start from the top at high level... How does financial fair play work in football and how does it apply to clubs?
0: So I should say at the outset that although financial fair play or FFP has come to be a sort of umbrella term for all manner of financial regulation in football at a number of different levels, I'm talking about it here in the sense of the regulations christened by European football's governing body, UEFA, which apply to clubs participating in UEFA club competitions. And UEFA introduced FFP a decade ago, roughly, with the objective of improving the overall financial health of European clubs and to ensure their long-term sustainable growth. And in essence, the idea was to ensure that clubs don't generate significant losses in pursuit of a competitive edge. And as to how FFP works, it's probably best thought of as having two key pillars – So since 2011, all clubs that have qualified for UEFA competitions have had to prove that they don't have overdue payables throughout the season, including in respect of transfers, employees and tax. So that's pillar one. And then pillar two, the one that gets a bit more attention, I think. Since 2013, clubs have also been assessed against break-even requirements, which require them to balance their expenses and revenues. And just to go into this pillar in a bit more detail... Clubs can spend up to 5 million euros more than they earn per assessment period, which is three years. And they can exceed that level a little further still, up to 30 million euros, if it's entirely covered by direct contributions from club owners or a related party. So the idea, therefore, is to broadly spend what you earn with some limited allowance for debt and owner contribution, which recognises that some debt is a perfectly normal part of a functioning business. And in terms of revenues that are recognised, only a club's outgoings in transfers, employee benefits, so including wages, finance costs and dividends are considered, and they're weighted against income from matchday sales, TV revenue, advertising, finance, player sales and prize money. And there are also some important exclusions that look to encourage investment in the game still. So costs associated with investment in stadiums, training facilities, youth development, community projects and women's football are all excluded from the break-even calculation. And as I mentioned, this broad framework has then led to the adoption of similar rules in many domestic leagues because UEFA's rules only bite in respect of clubs participating in UEFA competitions. And idealistically, that all sort of sounds great, doesn't it? It's pretty unquestionable that seeking to protect the long-term financial health of clubs is a good thing, at least done properly. Nobody, fans included, with my Arsenal fan hat on, wants their community harmed by the loss of their team if they chase glory and get it wrong. The difficulty is that there's a pretty fundamental side effect to the rules and the way that they work. They're a soft cap. In the sense that they flex and allow spending by clubs based on what income and expenditure they have in relative terms. So, the bigger the club and the bigger the revenue streams, the greater the continued spending power. So, your Real Madrid's and Manchester United's are in really good shape on that front. They already have considerable commercial and match day revenues, so they can continue to invest in the quality of their squads in pursuit of honours. What FFP makes much more difficult is for a club to have a change of ownership or a change of strategy and catapult itself to football's top table by spending on big transfers. The criticism of FFP, and I'm sure this is a point we'll come back to because it's a very delicate balancing act, is that FFP arguably also means the ladder being pulled up between Europe's top clubs and everyone else. The biggest clubs can continue to spend. And those looking up have to watch their bottom line maybe that bit more carefully. And in a day and age where, at the time we're speaking, there's a transfer window and transfer fees of £100 million are mooted for a single player pretty freely, a €30 million allowance for owner-covered losses over three years doesn't really allow much in the way of wiggle room if your revenues don't also suddenly increase in parallel.
1: And the issues that tend to get everyone's attention when it comes to FFP are typically the next day, so when the enforcement action kicks off. What does that enforcement process look like? Well,
0: at the time of talking, we're less than two weeks from some pretty fundamental changes on that front. So it's a really timely question and this stuff's hot off the press. So enforcement is tasked with the UEFA Club Financial Control Body or CFCB, which is an independent UEFA body. But its composition changed as recently as the 1st of July with a new set of procedural rules and a new structure to the CFCB with new members appointed. The CFCB, just for context, used to be divided between an investigatory chamber and an adjudicatory chamber. And it still has two chambers given the recent changes, but they have different names and the UEFA rules operate a bit differently. Just turning to the two chambers, the one to start with is the first chamber, which acts as the first instance decision maker within the CFCB. And the first chamber will have a reporting member in each case, which establishes the facts and collects all relevant evidence, and then makes a recommendation to the broader first chamber. And if there's then a hearing to take place, the reporting member will be heard, followed by the defendant club, before the first chamber makes its decision. And in terms of the first chamber's powers, these look to go beyond what the more investigatory remit was that the system used to have. The first chamber can, for example, dismiss the case, accept or reject a request for an exception to the three-year rule, conclude a settlement agreement and or impose disciplinary measures, which importantly aren't limited in the way that they used to be for the investigatory chamber. And the first chamber is also empowered to make final decisions in particularly urgent cases, such as where the case concerns entry into a UA for competition, which is a new rule. So that's the first chamber. And we've then got the appeals chamber, which sort of does what it says on the tin. It hears appeals of all but the small sanction cases, so not cases where there are warnings or fines. And it also won't hear those urgent cases I mentioned, which are heard on a final basis by the first chamber. And the way it works is that after a very tight procedural timetable to appeal, there's provision for an appeal hearing at which the appellant club will be heard, followed by a representative from the first chamber. And the appeals chamber has pretty wide powers and its decisions are final. Again, it can dismiss the case, it can uphold, amend or overturn the first chamber's decision, it can accept or reject the club's admission to the UEFA competition in question, and or it can impose disciplinary measure. And from there, if any parties are grieved by a final decision of the CFCB, and and quite a few have been over the past decade, the club has the right to appeal before the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or CAS, in Switzerland. And this tends to be the end of the road then, although in some very exceptional cases, a further appeal can be made to the Swiss court. And just to touch briefly on the sanctions that are possible against clubs, depending on various factors, there's a real range here going from a warning or a fine, all the way up to disqualification from UEFA competitions, or even withdrawal of a title or award. And it's when we get to the risk of disqualification from competition that there tends to be real media interest, and no doubt a few fans sweating at home. So we've got a whole new enforcement system at the time of talking. And I guess we'll see over time how that works.
1: And COVID's had a huge impact globally in in many, many ways. And the the, the sort of financial impact on sport is is no different, really. So in that context, did UEFA make changes to FFP to support the clubs?
0: Yeah, very much so. Clubs were and continue to face financial distress, and there was a very real possibility of many of them breaching the FFP regulations. And a UEFA report suggests that clubs across all tiers of European football are likely to miss out on around €9 billion of revenue from the last two financial years, which is a pretty extraordinary figure. And in particular, clubs that have a heavy reliance on supporter attendance and match day revenue have been really hard hit by COVID-19 and empty stadiums. And it's easy to forget that not all leagues attract the same level of broadcasting revenue as the Premier League clubs, for example. And against that background, last year UEFA established an emergency working group to look into this. And it resulted in the adoption of a temporary addendum to the FFP regulations in June 2020. And that addendum made changes to both of the two pillars of the rules that I mentioned earlier. So in terms of the overdue payables, clubs were granted an additional month to settle monetary obligations just to ease the, their burden during the 2020-2021 season. And on the breakeven requirement, these were quite complicated, but the reporting periods were adjusted such that the assessment for financial year 2020 was postponed. An assessment for financial year 2021 was modified to include the previous four seasons instead of the usual three. And there were also some further changes made to calculations of specific revenue items to help clubs. Adjustments could also be made then in respect of certain losses. And along with other changes such as extensions to the global transfer window last year, UEFA has recently reported that club finances have been able to weather the COVID-19 storm. That being said, at the time of talking, we're only just edging our way, hopefully, fingers crossed, out of this pandemic. So it may well be that we only really see the effect on football's finances over the coming years. And I should just say that this isn't all just detail for lawyers like me to get excited about, although we obviously do. There are some very real examples of clubs managing their debt levels at the moment and having to carefully watch expenditure. There's a free agent at the moment called, uh, or certainly at the time of talking, called Lionel Messi, who's meant to be half-decent. And we can only work off what we read in the press, of course, but it's reported that the reason he isn't still a Barcelona player, hasn't been snapped up anywhere else, at least for now, is due to concerns from clubs about compliance with financial regulation.
1: And you've touched on it already, but public statements from UEFA are suggesting that FFP is going to be fundamentally changed and driven to some degree by the pandemic. If that's the case, what do you think FFP will be remembered for? What do you think its legacy is going to be?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I I think the answer is that legacy probably has to be quite a mixed one. FFP has attracted negative publicity in, in the last few years due to several legal and procedural challenges. So it's not a huge surprise to see that the CFCB enforcement structure and procedural rules that I've mentioned have been changed with potentially FFP itself substantively to follow. But it's hard to argue that the financial health of top-tier football in Europe has been any, anything other than pretty impressive in the past decade. I guess the more difficult question is how much that genuinely has to do with FFP and how much it has to do really with the increasing global popularity of the game and increasing commercial and broadcasting revenues. In that recent report regarding the European club footballing landscape, UEFA suggested that FFP was responsible for COVID-19 not turning into a contagion for clubs. So you can see how UEFA views its own regulations. Another side to this is that I suspect UEFA would argue that, away from the media glare, the FFP regulations have been quietly effective. So sanctions have been successfully imposed against a number of clubs, despite challenges before the Court of Arbitration for Sport, including bans from European competition for AC Milan and Trabs on Sport, amongst others. As well as that, settlements have been agreed with a long list of clubs, including Inter Milan, Roma, Monaco, Lille and Wolves, to name just a few. If the framework for FFP is to ensure compliance – Settlements provided a confidential roadmap that would push clubs towards the right track. And maybe that's more of what FFP is about rather than big name cases and procedural disputes. And if you look at the last decade through that lens, the settlement aspect of FFP has probably had some success. That being said, there's no getting away from some of those problems that FFP has faced. And there are two. One that I'd like to cover is on the procedural side. And the other one that's less talked about is in terms of sort of competition law issues. So just on that first one, the CFCB has faced some difficult procedural issues in the past. And recent CAST decisions have clarified standard of evidence needed and the way limitation rules work. And it's arguable that a lack of clarity in when and how to enforce FFP has blunted its effectiveness at times. So I mentioned earlier that the procedural rules have changed. And there are three key points that I think make for really interesting reading on this front that are obviously brand new at the time of talking. First, there's a beefed up duty of cooperation that applies to a club that's faced with inquiries and requests from the CFCB. So in particular, if a club fails to comply and fulfil this duty, the CFCB can now draw adverse inferences against the club. The second point is that the limitation rules have changed. It used to be the case that prosecution was time barred after five years had passed from the alleged breaches. That's no longer the case, and the period is now five years in order for proceedings to be opened rather than prosecution. And this is potentially a really important distinction because it could buy the CFCB important wiggle room. Investigations can take time, And as we've seen, this can create real issues when the clock is ticking towards expiry to start prosecution. And lastly, on the procedural side, we've got a new rule that says that CAS cannot consider new facts or evidence that were available or could reasonably have been discovered by the appellant club and were not adduced before the CFCB. So it's not open to a club now to bring fresh evidence that it could or should have brought earlier which reduces the risk of an enforcement being blindsided on appeal before the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And these are all potentially critical procedural points. They suggest that UEFA might be learning lessons from the past in enforcement as it looks to the future. But the sort of different avenue of analysis on that is that it probably also tells you something about the gaps and areas where the rules needed reinforcement in the past. So that's the procedural side. The second point that I think goes to issues that FFP has faced, and one that's rarely talked about, is it goes back to my point about the side effect of FFP in reinforcing the grip of Europe's elite clubs on top-level football. So in this regard, FFP has faced some challenges and questions in relation to its compatibility with EU and Swiss competition law. Challenges came from Turkish football club Galatasaray and football agent Daniel Striani. And while neither was successful in the end, Galatasaray's arguments in particular before the Court of arbitration for sport, that there was a restriction of competition by effect in respect of the break-even rules under European law, failed largely due to a lack of expert economic evidence. It wasn't really dismissed out of hand by any means. And I think lastly, one point to, to mention again, because it's an important one, is that the elephant in the room is probably that FFP only applies to those participating in UEFA competitions. For clubs at those levels, at the top tier of football, larger commercial and broadcasting revenues already ensure that many clubs would have to go quite some way in terms of spending to get into financial difficulty. In lower league football, although there are financial regulations that have been adopted at domestic level um, in in many leagues, the tightrope can be considerably thinner. So English fans would look at clubs like Bury and Macclesfield, who've ceased to exist, and clubs like Bolton, who were in the Premier League not all that long ago, have come perilously close. And taking a step back and looking at the broader football pyramid, it's not really the top of the pyramid that we need to be most worried about. So looking at that as a whole, whilst FFP has, has worked to some degree and its objectives are admirable, It hasn't been smooth sailing, and it's probably fair to say that UEFA doesn't have a clean sheet on FFP, put it that way.
1: And I mentioned that FFP is set to be fundamentally changed, at least based on UEFA's statements. What comes next now? How do you think FFP will shape up as we look into the future?
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what comes next for the substantive FFP rules. And details are pretty thin on the ground at the time of speaking, but based on statements from UEFA and the content of their... European Club Footballing Landscape report from May this year, it looks like the intended revamp would look to do away with the break-even requirements, so that second pillar I mentioned, and push towards a more forward-looking model that focuses on club wage levels and the scale of fees in the transfer market. So the break-even rules at the moment, the way they work, are backward-looking. And what I mean by this is that the rules assess income and expenditure numbers on the basis of the previous three seasons. I think COVID has forced clubs as well as UEFA to consider if this is really the optimal way to ensure long-term sustainability and financial resilience. UEFA makes the point in the report that the breakeven rule was designed to tackle overspending and to prevent inflationary spikes. And the recent crisis takes us into the realms of needing urgent revenue control to ensure survival of clubs. So the idea would be to have a stronger focus on regulatory measures that look at the present and future activities of clubs by lowering expenditure to acceptable levels. And UEFA says it's begun a consultation process that it expects to complete by the end of this year. That being said, UEFA itself recognises that these issues are far from straightforward. And personally, I wouldn't be surprised if this takes some time.
1: If FFP is changed to contain a forward-looking focus on limiting transfer fees, wages, etc., do you see any challenges with that model?
0: Oh, there could be plenty of possible issues here, and, and, and that's why this is so complicated. The first thing to say, and obviously I would say this as a lawyer, but the devil really is in the detail here, the general idea of trying to bring spending on transfers and wages under control sounds quite sensible in principle. But what does it actually mean in practice, and how will it actually work? If the suggestion is that some kind of cap can be put in place, this risks being unpopular with certain clubs and being challenged in the long run. Will the cap remain, for example, a soft one that depends on revenues and flexes based on a club's relative position, as FFP does now, so that teams can spend relative to their financial strength? Or is a hard cap envisaged which means that all clubs have the same hard limit on what they can spend as, for example, the English Football League salary caps did. I think the way to visualise the challenges here is to take two teams from the same competition. So taking the Champions League winners and comparing them with a team that were out at the group stage is a good way to do this. So it feels like it probably can't be effective or workable to have Chelsea and, say, Club Bruges subject to the same specific limit on wages and transfer fees. And you can go further still in the difficulties in this comparison. So UEFA competitions also include the Europa League and the new Europa Conference League. So will the same cap apply to Chelsea and, say, Sligo Rovers of Ireland? It's going to be difficult and different clubs will naturally have completely different interests. And against that backdrop, financial caps of this kind are a hotbed increasingly for competition law challenges. You can see that a club with an ambitious owner that wants to spend more freely to get to Europe's top table quickly could have some concerns about the effect of a transfer fee or salary cap on competition and that that club's freedoms. We don't have to look too far for examples of, of competition challenges to these kinds of financial regulations. The PFA, for example, included a competition law challenge as part of its arguments against the EFL salary caps, which I mentioned earlier switching codes, Saracens Rugby Club also brought an unsuccessful competition law challenge in respect of salary caps in English Rugby Union, and that fell flat in large part again for issues in terms of expert economic evidence. Established principles now show that sports governing bodies and their decisions can, where they have economic effects, be subject to review by competition authorities, and UEFA has previously been determined to be an association of undertakings, which is subject to competition law. In that context, rules need to have a legitimate objective and every lawyer's favourite word. They have to be proportionate in their effects. You can see when you take that legal test that there will often be really complex legal and economic arguments running in different directions if a dispute actually materialises. And I think the last thing to say, as we've touched on, is that the specific drafting of the rules is maybe less sexy when it comes to clicks and column inches. But it's equally important. Gaps or ambiguities can leave rules open to exploitation. And the EFL profitability and sustainability rules, which are the sort of FFP equivalent that apply in the championship, have also come under scrutiny as to the application of them when it comes to the accounting of transfer fees, and sale of stadiums which have led to disputes with a number of English championship clubs. If you're going to have serious sporting sanctions in your armoury, you need to have a clear procedure and a set of rules that allow for swift and effective enforcement. And none of this stuff is easy.
1: And it sounds like financial regulation in football and, and, and sport in general is a really current topic. Is this something that's just a European trend or is it a global phenomenon?
0: So the increased focus on financial regulation in sport and legal disputes around it is definitely an increasingly global trend. I'd seen recently that David Beckham's Inter Miami in the US was subject to significant sanctions in relation to breach of the MLS's salary restrictions. They'd signed a number of big ticket players and exceeded the limits on what are known as designated players. And essentially, without needing to go too far into the detail, the rules restrict the number of players who can be paid above a particular salary threshold. And Inter Miami were found to have five such players instead of the permitted three. And none of this is particularly surprising, I think. Given the fine margins at the highest level of professional sport, it's no surprise to see clubs testing the boundary of rules on and off the pitch. And it's not just football either. There's another example from across the Atlantic on challenges to financial regulation. US college sports have been the subject of intense media spotlight over the the last month at time of talking. The NCAA, which is the national governing body of college sports, requires college sport to be amateur, which means that players can only receive basic remuneration from colleges in the form of scholarships. So no other remuneration, either from colleges or from third parties, is allowed. And it's a sort of salary cap in that respect. And this structure has since been held to be a breach of US antitrust law in a recent judgment from the US Supreme Court, no less. And that ruling opens the door for athletes to be able to get additional payments for their skills, as well as sign up for endorsements and monetize their brand. So there's a huge amount going on in terms of financial regulation in sports. And this is a genuinely global trend. As I said, FFP is kind of the tip of the iceberg, but since it's been around for a decade, it's a great opportunity to take stock of the past, but also to look ahead to the present and the future.
1: Thanks, Jason. It'll be really fascinating to see how this pans out in the coming months and years. So thanks again for taking the time to join us today. Cheers, John.
0: Pleasure. Pleasure. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.